Today is Annie Cheatham. This is going to be a two-part interview. Annie is a local treasure here in the Pioneer Valley. She was born in 1944 in North Carolina and grew up in Smithfield. She described herself in a 2008 interview as a social activist, a social change agent, and a networker. Annie has worked as director and co-founder of the Congressional Clearinghouse of the Future, and the Future is Female Project, both in Washington, D.C. And during that Future is uh, Female Project, she co-wrote the book, This Way Daybreak Comes. Annie's best known locally, probably for her years at Annie's Garden Store in Sunderland, and her time at, as director of CESA, Community Involved in Sustainable Agriculture. Most recently, Annie was working at the New England Farmers Union, and she's retired from that not too long ago. So, welcome to the show, Annie. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you for coming. Um, so I've known you, I figured out, like about 25 years, mm -hmm. and uh, I learned so much uh, more about you by preparing for this interview. It was really, really fun. And I'd like to start um, where, with your early years in North Carolina. And, you know, you grew up in your family as a Christian, as a white woman in a segregated South. Mm -hmm. And I wondered how you think about your upbringing as far as how it, it informed your path. It's kind of an open-ended question. Mm -hmm. It's fine to take it wherever. You. Well, it was a rural, uh, I grew up in a rural place, so it was very small town, 4,000 people, and it was totally segregated. There, um, there were no uh, African-American students in my school. There were signs, colored and white signs all over town. Um, the Klan was very active in my county. Um, I'm sure my parents n knew about lynchings. I never heard of them, heard about them, but I'm sure they were going on when I was there. A lot of bootlegging going on, uh, some really good moonshine being made in uh, my county. Um, my father was in the tobacco business. My mother was a school teacher. So um, I got a, I got a sense of agriculture and farmers from my father. And I got uh, a sense of social justice from my mother. Mm. She, she was, when uh, Brown versus Board of Education passed in 54, I was 10. And she was a third grade teacher. And the decision to, to desegregate the school systems in North Carolina began in the elementary schools. That was the first place that uh, anything was changed. So she was on the cutting edge there, and she mm. was in favor of that. She thought it was a good idea. Schools were not equal in our area, in our county. 
Um, so all of those, I mean, uh, so I grew up with those two people. My father was pretty conservative, though, you know, not uh, blatantly racist. I mean, mm -hmm. I suppose we all were. My mother would say things to me like, don't say lady, don't call her a lady. If she mm -hmm. was a black woman, you can't, she's not a lady. The black women can't be ladies. Mm. Um, or, you know, we would take, we had a maid, you know, take her home in our car and she would have to sit in the back seat. Well, I said, why is Slovenia in the back seat? Well, because she can't sit in the front seat. Hmm. None of those kinds of racial things made much sense to me growing up. And um, I, I just couldn't get it, uh, why black people were treated differently. I, I, the ones I knew, you know, our cook was wonderful woman, an important person in my life. My grandmother, a woman worked for, worked for her for 40 years, mm -hmm. part of the family. It, you know, uh, the black people that I knew that my father worked with uh, in the tobacco business were always warm and kind to me. So I, I just never understood the the whole desegregation thing. And I always had a feeling of violence uh, in the South. Um, I still do, I just got back, and I still mm -hmm. feel that uh, kind of undercurrent there that um, uh, I, uh, it made me feel unsafe. So mm -hmm. I stayed there through college. I went to graduate school at Chapel Hill, and I, um, so anyway, I, stay, I taught school in, in Charlotte when the school system was being desegregated. So you were part of that as well, mm -hmm. that your mom was, and then you were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what, what the Charlotte system was the system that had the Supreme Court case, and that was really a, a matter of really desegregating the schools based on busing and, and getting uh, schools to be percentage, uh, to reflect the percentage of the city or the town. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so it was a um, rich upbringing. I had, you know, I was well known and mm -hmm. in a small town and a small school. And so I couldn't do much and get away with much because <laughs> everybody would right. tell my mother. But uh, anyway. Well, it's interesting because that piece, feeling known, I think is one of the threads that informed your life mm -hmm. and, and, and your work. Because mm -hmm. it was so important to you, like at Annie's store, mm -hmm. you know, for people to feel known, that, yeah. pe that you had that intention that they feel known. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had that in spades. It mm -hmm. was very important. Uh, I think kids miss a lot of that now, bigger school systems. And, right. Um, but it's very, I think it's critical. I think all of us miss it. Yeah. The youth do, but you know, you go to the gas station, you don't talk to anybody anymore. Right. Or lots of times you go to the bank, you don't have to see anybody. Right. So you're not as known in your community the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I um I loved this interview that you gave in 2008 and it was a real help to me preparing. Uh in that interview 
you and the interviewer were reflecting on whether or not you considered yourself a feminist. And you said a really complex thing about yourself that I wanted to quote and, and talk about a little bit. You said, um, it's really connecting people with somebody else or to themselves to make it possible for you to grow a little bit more, to learn something new, or meet somebody who could take you somewhere else or move you along. I'm like a mother hen, that kind of putting people together, putting ideas together with people. I have a gift for knowing what will open you up and what will help you see a little bigger. That's how I would describe myself. And I can see sort of a link between that feeling known and having some kind of intuition almost mm -hmm. about others. Is that, does that ring true? Yeah, my partner Ann always says, I know, I pass her the butter before she knows she wants it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's that kind of anticipation and that kind of uh, observation and looking around and seeing what people need and, and then knowing where the, I'm very good on knowing my inventory, so I know it, people's interests, and I just mm -hmm. came back from 10 days in North Carolina with my family. So in con conversations with them, I've talked with them about different things, so I found myself clipping magazine and newsletter articles mm. and mailing them to them, you know, because I just was there, so I'm right. freshly aware now of what they are interested in and what they're thinking about. Yeah. Um, so if I, when I have that information, I'm very skillful at, at connecting the dots yeah. for people. Yeah. And, and, and your intention is to expand them, to, to help them grow a little bit. I mean, maybe on a more, not such a deep level, maybe it's something more, you know, superficial, but um, it seemed like that, that was part of, um, the work that you did with the Congressional Clearinghouse of the Future, where you brought people in. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? It seemed like that was another example of bringing people together and expanding them. Um, I was working in, in Congress for a congressman from North Carolina, Charlie mm -hmm. Rose, who's a very relational person. Mm. And also he was really pushing the House of Representatives into sort of the modern age and telling members of Congress they needed to keep their mailing lists and they needed to keep a, a, a database. And he used to go around with this big round disc, <laughs> tape, wow. computer tape, and say, if you have this, you'll get reelected. You know, you need to be in communication with your constituents. <laughs> this was 1973. Seventy, yeah, two or four—I forget. I think seventy, seventy-five, and uh, and he was he was responsible for getting the house uh, computerized so that they could do electronic voting. Mm -hmm. So he was right on the edge of technology and how it could be effective in getting uh, making the house business more um, efficient and. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, and he was a very relational person. So he um, and he was so he was interested in the future. And he he was invited by the World Future Society to make a 
a keynote speech and mm. I was his speechwriter and so wow. I wrote the speech and Alvin Toffler who wrote Future mm -hmm. Shock was on the same bill with Charlie and so I went to hear Charlie give my speech that I'd written and then because uh, I wanted to hear how he delivered that speech yeah. so I would know how to write for him and um, Alvin Toffler spoke and I stayed for that and it was that moment that I and and Charlie's interested in emerging issues and emerging technologies and his relational stuff that I went back to him and I said Charlie, you know, this, there's some really wonderful, important ideas being discussed in this community about emerging issues. Let's put together a, hmm. a he had already started the Congressional Clearinghouse for Women's Rights with wow. one of his staff, a woman member of his staff. So he, he was good at starting uh, these what are called legislative support organizations within yeah. Congress and getting one of his staff people to um, to staff it and mm -hmm. and so he uh, gave me a green light and uh, we got Toffler came down from New York and met with Charlie and um, and me and we began to talk about how we could hmm. uh, structure this so yes it was bringing uh, identifying people that were out there you know speaking uh, clearly and powerfully about future issues and emerging mm -hmm. issues and also getting people that were really famous to come to Washington and I mean Toffler was the first speaker, Margaret Mead was the second, wow. E.F. Schumacher was the third. Uh, I mean it was a parade over a three-year period of or more of um, who's who in American yeah. and international ideas and thinking. So the members of Congress would come those because they wanted to mm. meet these people oh interesting and they wanted to spend time with them and so it was uh, so yes and they were they were changed by it I, mm -hmm. several one member of Congress I remember passing him in the hall one day and the night before Jacques Cousteau had been there and mm. somebody had said well captain uh, what would you we have to vote yes or no on everything well you know we don't get to do any shades of gray. How would you advise us? And uh, Cousteau thought for a minute and he looked at the member of Congress and he said, I would try not to do anything irreversible. <laughs> so the next day I'm walking down the hall and there comes Congressman Bob Edgar from Pennsylvania. And I said, morning Bob, how are you? I'm trying not to do anything <laughs> irreversible. So it was that, and that happened, those kinds of exchanges happen fairly frequently after one of those events. Yeah. That I would run into some member of Congress who would comment on what they had heard and how they were trying to. And apply was that. it pretty, uh, both sides of, of the aisle were present? Was it Democrats oh, yeah. and Republicans? Yeah. Newt Gingrich was on the board and. Huh. So was Barbara Mikulski, so, you know, it was wonderful. So that whole sense now of how divided Congress right. is, right. it wasn't like no, that then. No. People were yeah. engaging in thoughtful conversation. We didn't allow any press media to be there. We weren't filming or mm -hmm. taping anything. It was, it was a dinner. We had it on the hill the night that they stayed in session on Wednesday night. So sometimes... 
the vote would come up and they'd all have to get up and leave and uh -huh. then they'd come back in 15 minutes and uh -huh. uh, so it was the person speaking had to understand that that was the situation but it was kind of off the record I don't know if anybody would even trust that anymore yeah um, it was a wonderful group people members of Congress who really wanted to learn and serve and and do you think that something grow. like that would be possible now I don't know. I, I'm not there, so mm -hmm. I can't uh, speculate. I would hope so, and um, but I think the fear of being exposed mm -hmm. could be challenging at this point, or s somebody misquoting you the next day, you know, mm. to somebody, and yeah. it would be hard. To, anyway, Al Gore became the chair after Charlie decided he'd done it long enough, and so I worked with him for a couple of years. Yeah. Here in the Pioneer Valley, you had your store, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, so it was a garden store, and you had gifts and lots of gardening things and information for people and how to work with all of that. But you also handed out poems. <laughs> And you had that sign that we all loved so much. I remember driving down 116 and then craning my, my neck around to be able to see the back side of the sign to see what the other side of the message was. So what, what were you communicating? What, what, what did the poems and the sign mean for you? I love you. Oh, wow. That's what it meant. It was my uh, way of saying to people driving by, <laughs> I care about you. That's so beautiful. And um, I, I always was dissatisfied with the exchange of money for something, for something. And especially because nobody needed anything I was selling. <laughs> so there was, there was a little bit of a vacuum in that exchange for me that wasn't mm -hmm. completely satisfying. So that's when I came up with the idea of giving out a poem because I wanted to give something free in a, to people in addition mm -hmm. to the thing that they bought. And um, so, you know, there are great poems about flowers and gardening and animals and, right. you know, Mary Oliver, bless her heart, was a great, uh, Oh, yeah. source yeah. Uh, of, of poems and, um, and then local poets like Dara Weir and Jim Tate wrote poems hmm. for me and brought them in and uh, other people too. So Did you ever write poems? No, I never did. Time? No, no. Hmm. So anyway, it was uh, lovely and, um, and some, some people didn't want a poem but I, I, I picked ones that were very accessible and not hard to understand. Right, right. But it was to say, I care about you. Yeah. And I'm thinking, and I'm alive, and I'm, you know, one of ones that I remember, uh, I was, the day, often, uh, the day before I was cleaning up my spice rack at home. So I went in the next day and put up the sign, when did you, have you cleaned out your spice rack lately? <laughs> <laughs> you know, people came in. Said no, but I needed to clean out my spice rack. <laughs> How did you know I needed to clean out my spice rack? So uh, you know, I was just—it it showed I w somebody was in there was alive, who was doing stuff like cleaning mm -hmm. out her spice rack, mm -hmm. and 
was thinking about you while they did it. Right. And um, so that was right. the whole thing. That's great. Um, I want to ask you about your spiritual life. But to get there, I'd like you to talk about composting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I was uh, uh, one day thinking about the sign as a sort of segue to, from the sign to this topic. I didn't know what to put on the sign. I didn't, you know, I was sort of dry. So I went out with the box of letters and, and I, I was worried about money which I often am, mm -hmm. uh, and I, um, I don't know, you know, it was hard to make a living in a little retail store. So I was worried about money. So I went, I got out to the sign, and uh, it came to me. What is profit? Hmm. I wrote on one side. And on the other, I wrote compost, leaf mold, and something else. Wow. And so um, compost is, to me, the sort of epitome. It is the profit. It is the best thing going. And, um, you know, that we can put in our orange peels in January and in June there are all this wonderful wormy mm -hmm. brown stuff that I can put on my garden and feed yeah. all these plants. It's a resurrection, I talk about it. In that way, to hmm. me, it is an experience of resurrection. It is a great uh, uh, time of, uh, of, of rejuvenation and, and restoration. And uh, it's great. I love it. It's my favorite part of gardening, without any question. And um, I learned a lot about the technology of composting and the percentage of carbon to nitrogen and mm. all that so there's quite wow. a science related to it but I, I just um, and I used to teach classes on how to compost and I used to teach classes building compost bins and people would come and hammer away and make a bin and somehow or other get it home with somebody's yeah. truck and so I've been teaching people about it and t talking about it for a long time yeah and your spiritual life? Well, this compost is kind of like compost. Yeah. It's got uh, Christianity and Buddhism mm -hmm. and Taoism. And um, I majored in religion in undergraduate school, so I have been interested in religion and what people believe and how they construct uh, belief systems. Um, I'm not dogmatic. Um, I, I, I can't imagine dying for my religion, you know, mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I go to war for my religion. I know religions have created tremendous destruction, um, people right. with their religious beliefs over the eons. I don't think like that about it. I'm reading Kierkegaard right now, as a matter of fact, and mm. Um, finding him fascinating and his um, challenge uh, for us to really live each moment and uh, where's where is uh, God in each moment of the of the day and um, hmm. that a person how they live their life is really 
says everything yeah. about what they believe. And if you want to know what somebody believes, look at how they're living. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's uh, and faith, he's writing a lot about faith, which I have a lot of faith in compost, but I, I haven't ever really swallowed that I'm loved um, mm. by some, that I, everything's going to be okay, you yeah. know, that it's, I don't need to worry about things. Hmm. I still worry, and I yeah. haven't quite got that, made that leap um, that I'm held somehow. Wow. So I'm uh, still working on it. Yeah. And you're a, a member of a Grace Church? I am a member of Grace Church here you in Amherst. You sing at the, in the choir? I'm s actually singing in the choir in Ashfield. In, in Ashfield? Ashfield Congregational Church. Oh, nice. We don't sing every Sunday, so I get to come down to Grace. Yeah. So music is Music is really important to me at church, mm. yeah. Um, so getting back to the farming and agriculture part of your life, which seems very integrated in with spirit, uh, at Seesaw, I want to know how the whole concept of the local hero started because it seems like, I mean, this is my own sense of we're the center of the universe, but it seems like we all became much more aware of buying local, of eating local through that campaign. And now it's every restaurant tells you exactly where they're getting all their their food and it, it's made a huge a huge impact yeah Cesar's Cesar was definitely on the cutting edge of that whole trend and um, it was uh, started the CESA started in 93 with a big grant from the Kellogg Foundation and the uh, purpose of the Kellogg grants that year I think there were 18 a million or more over a four-year period was to... Uh, $18 million. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, 18 grants were awarded for a million each okay. over a four-year period. Yeah. So a group in Pioneer Valley had come together to apply for this grant. I see. And Kellogg was, was developing, wanted to develop programs in food systems for sustaining agriculture throughout the country. So there were projects in Portland, Oregon, and um, I can't remember where they all were. But anyway, yeah. Pioneer Valley was one of them, and one of the big success stories of that group. Very um, much so. Uh, and was it just under, under your direction, was it like a small thing that grew well, the, cam the campaign started when I was at Annie's mm -hmm. in 98, and um, the first four years uh, of the grant, uh, the CISA was, th there was no local campaign. There were different, uh, from 93 to 98, there were action groups that were developing ideas. I was on one of those. A dairy action group created our family farms milk. Okay, that grew wow. out of that that grant and mm -hmm. that work. Um, there was a fiber uh, group, and 
I forget what actually came out of that, but something that lasted a while. And um, there were other, and there was a marketing group. And the mm -hmm. marketing group did a one day or one weekend kind of promotion for people to buy local. And it was well received. Hmm. And um, it was, and, and that was towards the end of the grant, and it was time to write a new proposal for another three years or something. And so a proposal was submitted to launch Be a Local Hero, Buy Locally Grown, and uh, it started in 98 with um, another big infusion of money from the Kellogg Foundation. Okay, we're gonna pause here and pick this up again in our second half of the show. So uh, for now, thank you. Thank you all for coming and we'll see you for part two.